2: Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm
0: Gillian Jacobs.
2: And I'm Deanna Reasonover.
0: This is Periodic Talks.
2: Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, theoretical physics, time travel, dark matter. It's STEM for those of us who are now learning
0: physics. We used to suffer from inertia, but now we understand the gravity of the situation.
2: It took me so much Wikipedia to write that joke. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on? Uh, so I had um, an interesting thing happen to me, uh, actually to my wife. We're trying to paint our dining room, and I had gotten all these paint samples. Did you know you can send in for paint samples through the mail? What? Yeah, you can oh. you can like pick them out online and they mail them to you. No more like going to the store and fighting over which color of green you want to get. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I know, right? So I had all these paint samples sent to me and I was going over them with my wife and I I was holding them up. It was kinda it was kind of late. It was like, you know, like nine, ten PM. And I was holding up two colors of this kind of terracotta-ish Tuscan red, orangey mm-hmm. color. And she says, oh, "I don't know. I just don't think this room needs to be purple." <gasps> I'm sorry. <laughs> and she was like, "I just don't think this room needs to be purple." And I looked at her and realized she wasn't tired. She wasn't joking. She really could not see the colors. Wow. And I was like, "Are you are you colorblind?" And she was like, "No, no. I that. Wait a minute. What color is that?" And when I showed them to her in the morning, she could totally see that they were like that orangey red. But at night, she could not tell what color they are. Oh, wow. Isn't that what? So I asked my sister, isn't that weird? What's going on? And she just told me that basically the two parts that make up like vision uh, in your eyes, your rods and your cones, um, your rods, which are responsible for low light vision, like kind of night vision, um, they don't have color sensitivity. They're not the pieces that have color vision. So if they were activated, it might have just been harder for her to focus on what the color was because her cones weren't activated because there wasn't enough light in the room.
0: Wow.
2: You've just blown my mind. Yeah, well, but more importantly, we still don't know what color the dining room's going to be. Like
0: <laughs> Back to the important questions. What about you? Well, I realized I had run out of animal facts <laughs> to share <laughs> at the beginning of the show, and I thought, you know what? Let me ask for some help. So um, I texted my friend Hannah Marks, who's an amazing actress, writer, and director. And I said, do you have any animal facts for me? And she came back to me with just an incredible, incredible STEM fact.
2: Okay, my favorite STEM fact would be the fact that
0: octopuses, uh, or shall I say octopi, have
2: three hearts. They have three hearts. What? What? Oh, I concur. What? That makes me you don't I don't think I've ever mentioned this. I love an octopus. And I mean, like, they just I've heard they're so smart. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I think they're so cool. So this just makes me love them more. And now I know they're more capable of loving me. <laughs> oh my god. Uh. I don't know what I love more.
0: The fact or your response to it? Yay. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Thank
2: you, Hannah. Oh, that brings me so much joy.
0: <laughs> well, what else brought me joy was our guest for story time this week. Do you want to intro our yeah. guest?
2: Yes, I do want to intro our guest. Our guest is the absolutely incredible. Kirby Howell-Baptiste. She has got so much going on right now, but you might have seen her on Killing Eve or on The Good Place. Kirby will be joining us for a story about dark matter.
0: Yes. (laughs) But first, we're talking to Dr. Clifford Johnson, who is a theoretical physicist and a professor at the University of Southern California. His research examines the fabric of the universe, theories about space-time, black holes, stuff like that.
2: It's the kind of expertise that allows him to act as a science consultant on TV shows and movies for projects uh, that you might have heard of, like things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: Yeah, small independent projects like (laughs) those. So we ended up talking to him about combining theoretical scientific concepts with storytelling, like time travel, we ended up talking a lot about time travel.
2: Can you blame us? <laughs> okay, let's get to our interview with Dr. Clifford Johnson. I'd love it if you could describe your job in the simplest terms.
3: Oh, that's great. Well, so there's there's the general question of what a physicist does, and then there's the specifics of what I do. So physics in general, as, as you probably know, is, is often to do with... Uh, sort of the foundations of of how a lot of stuff works, things like how things move, how things get their energy, how they turn energy from one form to another. And so that underlies so much of everything we do and arguably all of science. Uh, And then there are just so many fields of physics within that. So physics of materials, physics of energy, physics of radiation, physics of... Uh, how things are made of, subatomic particles, physics of gravity, all of those kinds of things. So physics is big, So and no one physicist studies all of it. So the kinds of things I do are to do with what I like to think of as origins questions. So what is everything made of at the most basic level? Where did it come from? So that leads you into thinking about the very, very small sort of subatomic particles and things like that. It leads you to thinking about Um, The whole universe, uh, its origins, uh, because if you go back far enough, the physics of the very small was relevant, everything coming from particles and then clumping to make more complicated things. And so it leads you to astrophysics and stuff like that. What I think about a lot is gravity. Um, it's it's, It's in some ways the most mysterious of the forces when you try and understand it at the quantum level. Uh, and uh, that's important for understanding the, the origins of the universe and things like black holes, which are very fascinating. And so I, start, I spend a lot of time thinking about quantum gravity, trying to put quantum and gravity together. And it's the nature of space time and where it comes from and stuff like that.
2: So what is the process like when you're asked to consult on movies and TV shows?
3: it, it, it varies. It, there, there are almost as many different ways as there are projects I've done. Uh, that's, that's partly because, uh, and it's something I've been working to try and change, there is no industry standard. Nobody knows really what science consulting should look like in the formal sense. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's part of this whole thing, which is trying to change that, trying to make it more routine. Uh, I you know, my, my feeling is is it'll become standard when we're a line item on some line editor's uh, Excel spreadsheet, right, that says, you know, the science advisor. Right now we're not there. So mm-hmm. so that means we have zero importance. And it's sort of completely a matter of luck as to whether we're involved in the process and how we're involved. So usually if I get a call, it's for a sort of five minute or maybe a lunch conversation, essentially to help with something that's already it's already in place. Mm-hmm. It's often too late. You know, we're shooting next week. We <laughs> want to know what, how the scientist is going to pronounce this thing. Scripts or, are locked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or we're shooting next week. Um, is this right or wrong? Okay. And, <laughs> and you know, I, and I'm happy to help. I'm happy to help with that kind of thing. But what I often try and do uh, at that point, or if I'm lucky, an earlier point just try and go hey actually uh, i can i can help you with so much more um mm-hmm. let let's let's dig a little deeper find out what what is the story you're trying to tell and and i might be able to help you in ways that you, you that maybe you hadn't thought of so oftentimes i'm called in as for example happened with um marvels agent carter tv show season 2 they they called me in initially to just help them with this this weird concept from the marvel comics that sounded physics-y, and they wanted to know what what the rules should be for this Mm. thing. And so we ended up having a great brainstorming lunch that um, once I got a better idea of where they were planning to go with it, I could go, oh, I see what you're doing here. So here's some more science Mm. or Mm. some science of a different kind that now I know your story goals, you might want to know about. And then they got really excited and then they said, oh, okay, I see. And then they came back and, and fed me some more story ideas and then I fed them some more science. And then eventually I was able to then give them a sort of a rule book as to how this particular substance worked. What that then helps with is then they can now build story off that.
2: Hmm.
3: Uh, and then they actually not only built story off that, they built additional characters. You know, the point is, is that it depends. There are many where, you know, the, the creators, um, the storytellers. Uh, don't want to do just more than get a bunch of buzzwords, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll give them some buzzwords, um, but there are times when it becomes, it organically grows into this fantastic relationship where uh, I can, in some ways, become a collaborator in 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 that early creative process, and then I can step back, and they go off and create with all of this one, this this toolbox, this this playground I gave them to build into their storytelling. So that's that's when it works at its, at its best.
0: Do you have a favorite science moment from a movie or a TV show?
2: Here's my answer to that. I always appreciate it when I get to watch something and say, I don't know, sounds good. As opposed to, you know, those moments when you're watching something and you're just like... Oh. That doesn't make a lick of sense. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? They're like, the reason this happened is because dinosaurs really are the ones who invented the wheel. You're kind of like, "Uh, is there actually (laughs) evidence for that? So I appreciate it when it's clear a production has done their research. uh, And it seems plausible, even if I don't actually understand the science. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense to me. But now I want to see a movie in which dinosaurs invent wheels.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is there a scientific concept you think would make a basis for a great script?
3: Um, oh, so many. Uh, <laughs> there's some amazing things that come from the science of space and time that are real things that are bonkers bizarre. <laughs> so time travel, right? We, 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 it seems problematic from the physics point of view to, to go back in time, to travel into the past. That may turn out to be wrong, but as far as we know right now, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible. But the idea of traveling to the future, that's a real thing. Um, and I don't mean just, you know, we're sitting here and time goes by. So we're traveling into the future. Yeah, sure. Very <laughs> clever. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, to do something where if you like, you, you, you enter into a, situation. And then when you come out of the situation, you are a hundred years in the future compared to everybody else. That's a thing. Okay. Um, what that is, what that really is, is the fact that you can slow time down for different observers, um, compared to everybody else. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: So from their perspective, when they come out of that situation, um, everyone has gone far ahead time-wise. Mm-hmm. So that's, if you think about it, the same as going to the future. So uh, th- that is a real thing because it turns out that extremely different gravitational fields can do it and also extremely different relative speeds. Yes. And so a famous uh, example of that in film is often one of the things people point to in Interstellar when mm-hmm. they go, that's made up, Right. Mm-hmm. And there's that famous scene. I don't know if you've seen *Interstellar*, where um, they have to go down to, you know, they're they're near that supermassive black hole, and then they have to leave the ship, go down to the surface of one of the um, planets um, that's in that in orbit there. Uh, they spend a few hours down there, and then they come back, and 22 years have gone by for the person they left. That's actually a real thing. If you if you if you did have an extreme gravitational field and you could go down and then come back out of it, you would in- that would indeed happen. Time would run more slowly for you closer to the very massive object than the people further away, mm-hmm. and that actually happens here on Earth. What? <laughs> yeah, it's just that you know we don't have a obviously uh, a really crazy, strong gravitational field like a supermassive black hole. But it happens a little bit. So time here on Earth ticks by slightly more slowly than it does in orbit.
1: Huh.
3: It's fractions of a second, many, many tiny fractions of a second difference. But you just amplify that. And and the reason we know that's true is because, in fact, when every time you use GPS, mm-hmm. Your cell tower, the cell tower for your phone is connecting back and forth with satellites in space and getting your timing locations and stuff like that. So it needs to know the time here on Earth compared to the time in orbit and it needs to connect those things uh, in order to uh, calculate your location. If it doesn't correct for the fact that time is running slightly differently in orbit, it would get it wrong. You have to actually put time travel into the GPS software. So this is a long way of saying that time traveling to the future is possible in this way. And I think it would be great to, to build. Imagine the human drama if you, if you routinely, or maybe in either an extraordinary situation, or if you routinely had to deal with the fact that time uh, is running massively differently for you versus your friends or your relatives. And I, I think it would be great to build this for real into into some serious drama. You could imagine for, you know, typical space travel dramas, right? You zip from one part of the solar system to some other solar system and what have you, and everything's fine. But what would happen in reality is that when you get there or when you come back, your grandchildren are greeting you, not your, not your uh, siblings or what have you. We should build that into drama.
0: You know what's so funny? After we recorded this interview, I realized that this concept is actually the premise of a scripted podcast that um, my friend wrote, and it's called From Now. And uh, in it, a spaceship vanishes, and then one survivor reappears 35 years later. And now he and his twin brother are completely different ages. So I got to oh. check it out.
2: <laughs> That's very cool.
0: Why do you think Hollywood is so obsessed with time travel?
3: That's a really great question. Um <laughs> I I I don't know. I've been thinking about it a lot because there have been a remarkable uh there has been a remarkable uptick in the number of projects uh that involve time travel. And and this is not just as you seeing what's being released, but for every new wave of things being released, there's a whole bunch of stuff that never gets made. So mm-hmm. so I've been uh, taking a lot of calls about time travel for any number of shows and books and movies and things, ninety-nine percent of which won't get made. And so it's very measurable. Going to the question itself, I, I feel that it's a it's a great way of examining some of the things we really care about in our in our. Predicament, if you like, of being humans, right? That the sort of choices we make. Did I make the right choice? What would I do if I got another chance at that same choice? Uh, there's a nostalgia element, right? Would it be, wouldn't it be nice to visit that that time? Uh, and then there there are all kinds of. Uh, fun things as well, right? It gets you thinking, it makes your brain hurt sometimes. <laughs> All those things come together with just one thing, which is if I could just mess with time in a way that's different from how it normally is. Whether it's re- whether it's possible or not, it's a different matter. Let's just let's just use our imaginations. So I think something about being able to play with time, and in a way, in a very simple way, you just run it backwards or you make it go in the loop, and it, it just produces so many great story opportunities. So I think it's... Uh, That's probably partly, uh, largely at, at the heart of it, I would say. It's a story machine. It's a story generating machine.
0: We wanted to ask you maybe uh, a bit more about your Hollywood consulting work sure. uh, and maybe some of the, you know, the principles that you're being asked. I, I was reading about your work with Avengers Endgame and this idea of branch timelines. Can you, you describe your work on Avengers timelines? Oh, I mean, right. Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I yeah. came up so, with another movie.
2: <laughs> that,
3: yes, that's right.
0: Avengers timelines. <laughs> that
3: would be great, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> Again, there's an idea. Yes.
0: Multiverse, P- yeah. Pitch that
3: to, yeah. That. That is that's one of the ideas that often comes up when people are thinking about how you how you reconcile some of the paradoxes that happen with with, with time travel. Right. And there's a, the famous thing that's called the grandfather paradox, where you know, you get into a time machine, you you go back in time and and you and you kill your grandfather, and therefore you would never have been born, and therefore you would never have gotten into the time machine to go back and right. So there's there's a paradox there and one of the things people thought um of as a way of getting out of that is to say well maybe when you go back and you change something what you do is uh it's not the same universe anymore mm mm-hmm. so then the you know that future that's different and everything is is fine because you you've jumped from that by by doing that act you jumped from the timeline that was your previous universe that you're in to this new universe and uh, so it's a it's a it's a scenario not a particularly economical one, in my opinion, of 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 saving the logic of how everything fits together time wise mm-hmm. by by branching the universe, having multiple universes, and this is one of many ways, uh, not all of which have anything to do with time travel. One of many ways in which you come up with sort of multiverse ideas, idea the universe branching. Um, so, coming to the Avengers setup, I, I was I was invited. Um, and I should say, like in many of these things, um, uh, I'm not the only scientist. I, th- I think they talk to a number of scientists. But I was invited to go brainstorm with them. So, so the, the writers and uh, uh, directors and a bunch of producers. And uh, they were exploring, it's all very top secret at the time, they were exploring uh, the idea of using you know, this time travel fix, uh, for the second movie. So th- again, this was great. This was before they'd fully written everything. They were looking for ideas. And so one of the things we did is we just brainstormed time travel ideas. What, what are all the time travel ideas that are in existing movies? What other ones might you have? What are ones that are uh, coming from the real science? And uh, so on and so forth. So that was my role there, uh, primarily in, in that part of the, the consult which is just to help them explore the time travel ideas, help them explore what the kinds of rules would be. And then and then they went away and built their own dramatic story based on on some of that. So uh, one of the things I think they wanted to do as well is sort of avoid some of the, the standard tropes to mm-hmm. the point where we were joking about that in the room and then it ended up being in some of the movie where... I forget uh, who says it. Sort of says, you know, when this is this is not Back to the Future, and that actually was from the brainstorming, saying we don't want to be doing, we don't want to be doing the rules of Back to the Future. So in the end, they, they used a hybrid of time travel ideas to come up with what you see in the uh, in the in the final Endgame story, and it was it was fun to to give them some material to, to work with.
0: All right, let's pause the conversation and take a short break. Up next, Theoretical Physics 101. We look at two fascinating theories in the universe, black holes and string theory. We'll be right back. And we're back. Okay, let's pivot from talking about your work as a science consultant and talk about theoretical physics. Mm -hmm. Just some basic stuff, though. Like, (laughs) I don't know, what's a black hole?
3: Well, we know from looking out in space that there are these incredibly dense areas of mass that, for example, come from large stars that have run out of fuel and they collapse under gravity, or lots and lots of material at the cores of centers of galaxies that clump together and form really massive areas of intense gravity. So intense that light itself can't escape from those regions. And so they got called black holes many years ago. And they seem to be really, really important objects in our universe. And what we learn from Einstein's theory of gravity is that they are Very, very interesting phenomena concerning extreme bending of space and time itself. So space and time go really, really crazy there in a way that um, makes it uh, an object in its own right, that's worthy of study. That uh, dominates a lot of the physics of what's going on in astrophysics.
2: I can totally see why (laughs) people need to come to you earlier Uh, Not with these scripts, because I'm, like, listening to you, and I'm like, I have all these ideas. I'm like, what? Like, what if you build a superhero that was like a black hole? Like, they were so good until finally they collapsed.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's great. That sounds good. I like that. I'm
2: giving it away for free. Here we go. No, no, no. (laughs) We'll
0: redact that from the episode.
3: No, we won't. won't.
1: Take it.
2: Okay, another physics 101 question. Go for it. Can you explain—this is so big. Can you please explain string theory? Mm. Ah.
0: Yes.
3: So in trying to understand things like the quantum nature of the universe, we write down certain kinds of equations that end up being tools for describing things. And Mm. the biggest successes so far have been in treating everything as particles. So what's everything made of? Oh, they're made of fundamental particles. And those particles are made of even smaller particles and so on and so forth. And that's been very successful Um, But it fails to describe certain kinds of phenomena. And there are many things we don't understand. Uh, And one of the thoughts people had very early on is that maybe it isn't always particles. There's no reason that everything needs to be made of fundamental particles. It could be that your uh, fundamental object is something different. And so someone made a lot of success uh whole community made a lot of success in saying, well, what if instead it's extended objects? Instead of a point, it's like a line, and that line can wiggle. It can have ends or not have ends. It's like a uh, maybe a loop. And so what I'm talking about is like a little string, which has a it's a loop of string, or it's a string with ends. And then that actually uh, is something you could go, well, let's now work with that and see what it gives just uh, as a thought experiment. And what people realize is that you get a lot of extra interesting properties. For example, the vibrations of those strings can themselves look like, if you sort of step far away enough from them, they can look like different kinds of particles. And so people began to realize that maybe one possibility for why we see all the different kinds of particles that we see in the universe is not just because there's this this long, endless list of different particles, but because they could be different vibrations of single string. So it's a tantalizing idea. And the reason people got very excited about it, especially in recent times, is because one of those vibrations is just the kind of thing we'd been looking for to understand how to describe gravity at the quantum level. There ought to be a particle which corresponds to the exchange of the gravitational force Mm. between objects uh, at the quantum level, and that turns out to be nicely described in terms of being the vibrations of a string. So it's completely uh, embryonic as an idea. It's still something people really want to uh, work into into a complete statement and hopefully, a prediction about nature. But right now, the reason it's exciting, and has been for some decades, is because it gives you a lot of exciting possibilities for describing nature. But we don't know if it's true or not. Uh, There's a lot to be understood. But there's been some remarkable advances in understanding, especially, uh, models of quantum gravity. We can understand certain classes of black holes and their quantum nature that we've been looking for, as I mentioned earlier. We can at least make some considerable progress in modeling those kinds of things using string theory techniques.
1: Hi, this is Tamika, the producer. My question immediately is, is it sort of an imperfect analogy using strings as sort of the the idea to describe it, because I think of strings as being made of particles. So I get I get a little confused uh, eventually on this sort of thought train. If that makes sense,
3: that that's a really great question. Um, if if you like you you could you could say, well, everything when it comes down to it, I should be able to build up from particles in some, at least in a mathematical sense. You know, even if I talk about, say, a uh, a two-dimensional object like the surface of a table, you could say, well, I just use points to describe every coordinate on that point on that uh, table. So in some sense, the surface of the table is still made of points, even though the whole thing is a plane, if we you know thinking of it in terms of geometry, Or I could think of it as having drawn a sequence of lines um next to each other and that that makes a plane as well but that's more to do with the mathematical description of the sort of coordinates of that object and that's different from asking what is the object fundamentally from a physics perspective and uh you can think of an object at least as much as you need to explore it from the point of view of the physics you can ask whether something is Zero dimensional would be the technical term, a point, or one dimensional, which would be a line, or two dimensional, etc. And then that collection of points, as you're right, it is, uh, moves together in such a way that tells you whether it, those points are sort of independent of each other or connected in such a way fundamentally that they then move as a line. And so that's sort of the issue is, um, is there a good description? of phenomena in nature that we're curious about, where fundamentally the object underlying those phenomena is, is a string and, and not a bunch of independent particles. So if you like, you can think of it as, yeah, you can think of it as a, yes, it's a bunch of particles, but you've chained them together, you've locked them together in such a way that they don't have an individual identity except as this string-like object.
0: It's awesome, so cool. Yeah, so I know that you decided at a very young age that you wanted to be a physicist. Is the job like what you imagined it would be when you were a child?
3: Um, yeah, and a thousand times more in the sense <laughs> that, uh, no, really, it's, it's sort of you know, I had this like it's become a cliche now, but it's worth saying. I think most children. Um, No, I would say all children are in some sense, uh, they start out as scientists, right? Mm -hmm. Just to basically navigate the world, you have to do experiments. You have to figure out what the rules are. Uh, And you do it by trial and error and by experiment, by, by getting it wrong and doing it, repeating it many times and seeing what if I keep doing it this way, it works. So this must be the way it works, right? And that's basically the foundation of science. Um, and you get curious, and you start taking things apart, um, for better or worse, uh, perhaps to the annoyance <laughs> of your parents. But the point is, is that at some point, I learned, oh, you can do this for a living. Mm. I don't have to stop doing this. So yes, at least for now, enough of it is still that awesome business of, being free to ask crazy questions about stuff and then finding ways of getting answers for it, uh, answers to those questions. And that's basically whatever field of science you're in. That's an awesome thing to be able to do. It's everything I dreamed and, and more in that sense.
0: Thank you so much. This was so fascinating to get to speak with you. We're so appreciative of how generous you've been with us today. Uh, it's been such a treat.
3: Well, it's been a real treat for me as well. Um, it's just nice to meet people who, you know, care about this, right? Science being out there and all of that. And you've been very generous to me as well. So thank you. I hope your podcast continues to go from strength to strength.
2: Aww. Aww, thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay, let's take one last break. Then, a story about dark matter. We'll be right back. All right. Do you want to introduce our special guest this week?
2: Yes, I absolutely do. I am so excited. You know her from The Good Place, from Barry, and from the movie Cruella. It's Kirby Howell Baptiste. Woo! Hi, guys. <laughs> Kirby, how long have we known each other? <laughs> so long.
0: <laughs> so uh, I don't know that we've known each other for as long, and I haven't seen you in such a long time but we did get to share a few scenes together on the show love. And I was always sad that we didn't have more of them because I think you're so incredible.
1: So it's so great to see you. It's so great to see you too. And actually, do you know what's quite odd is that you two are probably some of the people that I've known the longest. Only because Dion and oh. I met you so early and then Gideon, I so I got on love. Like it was such a long time ago now. So you two are some of the people I've known for a very, very long time. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, we're thrilled that you're here with us. Um, and we hear that are you perhaps obsessed with the universe? I'm reading that. Is that true?
1: I I am a little obsessed with the universe. I think over the last year, because of um, because everything that has happened, which is like probably how every sentence is going to start for the next year, like over the last year. But um, I think thinking about. Essentially, our whole... Everything we've put in place has ground to a halt because of, like, the tiniest little thing that you can't even see, right? And Mm -hmm. that has spread and that has ground it to a halt. And it got me to thinking about, like, how small that thing is, right? How small this virus is. Literally, physically, how small it is and what it can do. And then how small we actually are in relation to everything. Like, how much we have all these things that are really important, but they kind of almost... They're just, like... It's like every single one of us is playing pretend all the time. Mm. Like (laughs) you know (laughs) what I mean? In this like really it's like we're essentially ants, right? We're so small in comparison to everything else. And I can't stop thinking about it. About like, even if you go on an airplane, right, which is still relatively not that high up, you it's very quick. It's maybe what, 20, 30 seconds, and you can't even see people anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm. Like we are as small as a tiny little coronavirus. In the space of the universe, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Smaller. No, that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. And that thing about playing pretend, I relate to that so much because I remember having like Zoom meetings when, you know, the virus was first picking <laughs> up and about little things. And I'm like, this is all made up. Yeah. <laughs> right. Why right. are we doing
1: this? Right. I've had that experience before. when I was walking around and I looked at all the houses. I was just like having a lovely stroll in Silver Lake, actually. And I was like, <laughs> It's all a set. It's all <laughs> a set. And we've created all of this. None of it's real. And we're all just like, go into my house that I played with money, which is also fake. <laughs> and, and it's
0: true in L.A. too. You could have very well actually wandered onto a set as you were That's on that true. <laughs> That's when it gets very meta. Well, I, yeah. I can't wait for you to hear the interview that we did with this professor from USC who's who studies quantum physics because this is all the sorts of things we are talking about and and what his work is involved with, and it really got me thinking, yeah, about all of these things as well,
2: yeah, yeah, I think you would actually really enjoy him he taught- He taught us about how um time travel into the future is actually possible,
1: <sighs> <sighs> yes. <laughs> Yes, of course it is. Absolutely, of course it is. Are we ready for it? No, but it's (laughs) it's
2: possible. Should we get to story time? Yeah. Okay. This is the story about dark matter. We'll also learn a little bit about Vera Rubin, an astronomer who helped make groundbreaking observations about it.
0: Dark matter is one of the most captivating, mysterious elements in our universe. Okay, for starters, it's invisible to the eye, it doesn't interact with light, but it makes up about 27%
1: of the universe. That is so wild. It sounds like it's straight out of science fiction. But it also has a great name though, right? Like, I guess this is why Hollywood has taken some creative liberties with a thing we don't fully understand. Uh-huh. Like, um, there's an episode of the X-Files where a character is seemingly exposed to dark matter.
0: The accident in the lab, the quantum bombardment, you believe that altered you physically?
3: <laughs> you could you say that. Can you tell us how? <sighs> Even if I could, you wouldn't understand.
2: But it has something to do with dark matter.
3: It has everything to do with dark matter.
2: In Futurama, dark matter is used as a starship fuel. Prepare for liftoff.
1: We're out of fuel. Bender, I told you to fill the tank before we left.
2: Yeah, I'll do it when we get back. And then there's literally a sci-fi drama called dark matter.
0: So awesome name aside, let's get into how we discovered something we can't see. I feel like we need to recap some basics about galaxies. Galaxies are these unimaginably massive collections of matter held together, at least in part by gravitational pull.
1: Let's use the Milky Way galaxy as an example. So within the Milky Way, you have billions of stars, and one of them is our sun. So similar principles apply to keep our solar system together. The sun is a heavy, dense object, and the gravitational pull around the sun keeps the matter around it moving, like our planets.
2: Scientists can actually gauge the approximate weight of the sun by calculating how fast other mass moves around it. Make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. So zoom all the way back out, past our sun, past our solar system. There again, we're talking about galaxies, these huge collections of many, many stars and space dust and interstellar gas and, yes, dark matter.
0: As telescopes became more sophisticated, scientists were able to peer past our own solar system, past our galaxy and into others. So We see these strange disk-looking things, these galaxies. Of course, we look closer and closer and closer until we could see some of the matter within. Are you on the edge of your seat yet? So how'd we notice dark matter if we couldn't see it?
1: Well, in 1933, an astronomer named Fritz Zwicky announced that he made a strange observation. He'd been studying mass within a
2: cluster of galaxies, but the math just didn't add up. There wasn't enough visible mass within each galaxy to account for how fast they were moving. What matter was accounting for the extra gravitational pull to keep them together. He just couldn't see it. Hmm.
0: So he theorized that there must be missing mass or missing matter. The idea kind of went unexamined thoroughly for decades until... Some American astronomers took the theory a step further.
1: So one of them was Vera Rubin. She was a Philadelphia-born lover of outer space. Shortly after Fritz Vicky made his discovery about missing matter, Vera was becoming obsessed with the stars outside her window.
2: She says, quote, By about age 12, I would prefer to stay up and watch the stars than go to sleep. I started learning. I started going to the library and reading, but it was initially just watching the stars from my bedroom that I really did. There was nothing as interesting in my life as watching the stars every night.
0: She built a homemade telescope and nurtured her passion for space into adulthood. She graduated from college as the only female astronomy major in her class. Next, she studied physics and then got a Ph.D. in astronomy
1: in 1954. Vera was super passionate about the dynamics of galaxies, spiral galaxies specifically. She was so curious about how they moved and how fast matter moved within them.
2: She took a research position in D.C., which is where she ultimately helped make a groundbreaking observation. At the time, she was working with an astronomer named W. Ken Ford.
0: So one night, she and Ford were observing the Andromeda galaxy. That's our nearest neighbor. It's only uh, 2.5 million light years away. So they noticed that stars in the galaxy, particularly the ones far from its center, were moving oddly fast. The amount of visible mass in that galaxy shouldn't have a strong enough gravitational pull to keep those stars
1: orbiting that quickly. Together, Vera and Ken studied some 60 spiral galaxies finding the same odd phenomena. They theorized that there must be a lot of unseen mass in the universe.
2: The research provided important proof that dark matter exists. During an interview, Vera said, quote, It was not a concept that people embraced enthusiastically, but I think that observations were undeniable enough so that most people just unenthusiastically adopted it.
0: Hmm. So, okay, this discovery of dark matter is just the start of a bigger mystery. Researchers have theories about what dark matter is, but all we know with some certainty is that it doesn't interact with other matter in a way that we're used to, in a way that allows our senses to perceive it. But it does appear
1: to interact with gravity. So that's a place to start. Vera has sadly passed away, but her important work and her name still live on. Actually, she's low-key referenced in season three of Star Trek Discovery. In the show, they named the Verubin Nebula after her.
2: I also found this really great quote from her son, quote, One evening, when I was a child, about 10 years old, my mother told me that she knew something about astronomy that no one else knew. To this day, I remember thinking that this was extraordinary. What I later learned was that all scientists discover things that no one else knows, because this is the point of science, that some new ideas are more interesting or more important than others, and that what my mom alone then knew was the beginning of the story of dark matter. Yay.
0: Thanks, Kirby. Oh, Kirby is the best. Okay. You know what? Tamika made a really good observation that there's a lot of candy and snacks named after things from our cosmos. I'd never thought about this before, but when she pointed it out, it's now so apparent to me. Like, starbursts. Oh, my gosh. I never even thought about it in that way. Do you have any favorite snacks or candy named after something from the cosmos?
2: If I had to pick one, I would say Milky Way, although, mm. you know, for me, Milky Way are just, you know, Snickers that lost their nuts. But, you know, <laughs> oh, can we say that? Am I allowed to say that about Milky Way? <laughs> Do you have one? <laughs>
0: How can I top
2: that? I guess
0: I'd go with Starbursts. <laughs>
2: Okay, it is time to read some reviews. Oh, here's one from Anastasia Froths. I really want you to read this one, Gillian. Okay,
0: long live periodic talks! I saw a super cool article about Pine Rock Land Tropdoor spiders this week, and I just want to make sure Gillian knows about it. Okay, clicking on the link. I need. To- oh my goodness. <laughs> The image is alarming. Um, whoa, there is a mysterious new tarantula-like spider identified in the Florida Everglades. I'm so glad for science, but a little scared to ever encounter it in real life.
2: Yeah. It's considered to be a habitat specialist and some of the longest living species around. So the reason it's called a trapdoor spider is because they hide in a little burrow under a trapdoor and wait until they can ambush their prey. Wow, yeah. And I'm also reading that scientists
0: theorize that they may only live in the Pine Rocklands habitat in southern Florida. So I'm a little bit afraid of you, Pine Rockland trapdoor spiders, but I'm wishing you all the best in the pine rockland habitats of southern florida i'm wishing you all the best ah oh,
2: that's great so here's one from nap88 on instagram they're talking about a conversation that gillian and i had during the episode your brain on music love the shout out to Dermodex mites as an optometrist i spend my day on the lookout for the little guys ah oh Uh, What was it? You might have a friend is what I said before. (laughs) Hey, listen, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might read your comments on the show and take that opportunity to write us about any cool animal or STEM facts that you find. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon.
0: Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns.
2: Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres.
0: Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine
2: Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.